going to try to, oh, that might be easier, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. How is everybody this fine first Sunday of August? Um, I'm going to be a little challenged here. My son used my iPad and it was completely dead and I didn't realize that. So my notes are on my computer. But as you can see, um, note to us, our, our leadership team, we should order a podium. <laughs> Between the computer and the, the Bible, this could be interesting. Um, <laughs> who said it? Someone was like, yes. <laughs> um, so what we're actually beginning this week, um, oh, the, the lovely gentleman, if you're new here, the lovely gentleman that just brought my computer and my Bible up is my husband. He's, he's not my assistant, he's my husband. <laughs> um, him and I together pastor the church. There's some roles I assist him in, and then as you saw with things that are heavy, he assists me. Um, so <laughs> we complement each other greatly. Um, we are starting a new series, and there it is. And there's the lovely John Cho. <laughs> Don't you love John Cho? <laughs> Thank you, John. He, he was like, ooh, this is going to be challenging. Help Bethany out. Uh, we're starting a new series called My House. Um, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and I think it's three weeks that we're going to be covering. Um, and, and basically, Jesus said in the New Testament, and he was, pro- uh, he was um, quoting the prophet Isaiah, when he came in, I actually preached on this a couple weeks ago, don't worry, I'm not preaching it again today, but he came into the temple and he cleansed the temple and he declared, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That was Jesus's words. Can you just let that register for a moment? So we all have a lot of interpretations of what we want the church to be, right? We have a lot of, um, you can find lots of different churches uh, throughout the U.S. and the nations of the earth. But there is something that Jesus declared that he gave the identity and the the function of what the church is called to be. And so what we're going to talk about today, and I'm going to do it as concisely as possible, um, I will say this, I t- actually, uh, Janata was sitting next to me and he saw my notes. Uh, <laughs> my husband said to me earlier this week, he said, you actually don't really need to prepare for this because you could kind of teach it blindly. True. It actually takes more preparation when something could and should take like four weeks on a particular topic to try to reduce it down to 45 minutes. Um, So I will say when it comes to public speaking, the greatest challenge is not coming up with content. The greatest challenge is reducing your content to that which is that most important. And so I want to say this to you today. We are just going to skim the surface over these next three weeks. If you truly will open the word yourself and begin to read about the topic, and I'm going to say this very broadly, of worship and prayer, what you will find out is all throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies that we see are very much related to worship to the ends of the earth, where it's declared that every place incense shall arise to my name, that praise awaits you from the ends of the earth. There is something of the identity and the function of a worshiping people. And so you may be like here today and be like, well, I'm not so much into music. It's actually not an issue of music. It's an issue of worship and adoration. And so this is what I want to encourage you. There's some people here today, you might identify yourself as being more of like an evangelist or more of a prophet, or uh, you might identify yourself with different movements in the body of Christ of kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm after signs and wonders and power evangelism and these, all of these things. But can I say to you that for all of us that name the name of Christ, 
the main and supreme issue is worship. And I'm going to say this before we kind of go through it systematically from Old Testament to New Testament, is when you find in Romans 1, if any of you have read Romans 1, you can find many of the, um, some of the challenges and uh, I'll even say some of the crisis that faces our generation is outlined in Romans 1. But you know the beautiful thing is, is that in Romans 1, what's declared is it says, it talks about men leaving the natural use of women and women and all of these things of kind of that are symptomatic in our culture. But you know in Romans 1, it's actually diagnosed as a problem of worship. It actually says that although they knew him as God, They did not worship him as God. So you can know him as God. As a culture, we can know him as God. But we can be absent of worshiping him as God. And it goes on to say that instead of worshiping the creator, if you were here last week, uh, Paul Jaley actually talked about knowing God as the creator, as the foundation. That instead of worshiping the creator they begin to worship the creation. Do you see that this is an issue of worship? And so before we even talk about the identity and the function of the church as the house of prayer, I want to ask you as an individual, are some of the challenges and crises, hardships, difficulties in your very life, is the root issue an issue of worship? The root issue of that you know God, but you're not worshiping him as God. That instead of worshiping the creator, you are worshiping creation. You are worshiping a created thing or a created person or a created institution, something that has been created instead of worshiping the creator. And so this is what the true issue and challenge that we face in our generation is to become a worshiping people. And so what we're going to do is um, I actually want to begin because if we're going to talk about worship and prayer... Let's, let's identify, we actually can't rightfully talk about being a house of worship or a house of prayer unless we talk about what is the object of our worship. Mostly, we lack being a people of worship and adoration is because we actually truly don't um, acknowledge, identify, and, and grow in our knowledge of the object of our worship. And so, for me, whenever we're going to talk, we are going to talk about Jesus' words. We're going to talk about the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, we had the tabernacle of meeting. And then in the New Testament, we had the temple. House of prayer is not a new concept or idea or trend. But do you want to know all of it is patterned after a heavenly reality? And we find that in Revelations 4. And so we're going to start with Revelations 4 today, if you'll turn there with me. Revelations chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, 
And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. Once you circle that, highlight that, underline that, they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. They're worshiping him as the creator of all things. And their declaration is holy, holy, holy. That's what's heard around the throne day and night. And they never rest and they never cease from that posture. And do you know that this is the pattern when we talk about the house of prayer or the, uh, the, the church being a place of worship and prayer, that ultimately it's a type and a shadow of a heavenly reality. And hear me, I'm not saying we are not going to have heaven here on earth before the return of Jesus Christ, but that is what he is coming to create, is that heaven re- heavenly reality when he does return. But can I give you this understanding is that we as a body of believers, that those that call upon the name of the Lord and identify as the church in the earth, that what we are to base our life off of is heavenly realities. That you are to find your vocation and your function, that you are to find your identity, that you are to find what you were created for in heavenly places. And the extraordinary thing is that as believers, if we begin to have more of um, an understanding and more of a love and more of an adoration for what is taking place in heaven, it is going to change our earthly reality, meaning the reality of your home, the reality of your job, the reality of your marriage, the reality of your family. The more we grow in love and adoration for the man Christ Jesus, the more that our our eyes are filled with the gaze of heaven, it will change the reality of it. It's going to change your emotional makeup. It's going to change the way you perceive yourself and the way you perceive others. It's going to change your emotional responses. It's this reality of what is taking place in heavenly places. Because guess what? You were not created strictly for the here and the now. You were not created to live within the confines of this reality, this present age, and your present emotional reality. You were called to live according to a higher reality and a greater reality. And until we come to a place, I'm going to say this to you, friends. If we cannot, with sincerity and honesty, declare the Psalms where David says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that one thing will I seek, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. 
I understand for most of us, that is not the reality of our life and our passions, our desires, and our drive. But can I challenge you this morning, friends? If you'd make Psalm 27, I'm going to pray this daily until I can actually say one thing I have desired and that one thing I am going to seek, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord, that the greatest ambition of our life would be to behold the beauty of the Lord. Can I tell you something? Cambridge will be saved. Boston will be saved. New England will be saved. America will see revival when we have a people that have been captivated by the beauty of holiness. The issue is not that we need more structures or more organizations or more um, efforts to... I want you preaching the gospel. I'm not saying don't preach the gospel. But you should be preaching the gospel out of a place of fascination for the man Christ Jesus, that you've beheld him, that you're looking upon him, and that there is a groan in your spirit for more of him. The psalmist David, in Psalm 82, when he declared, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, then dwell in the camps of the wicked. The longing just to simply be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That is the posture of yearning and groaning for the presence of God. Most of us, we fulfill our duty of time in prayer and time in worship. Can I ask you, friend, what does it look like when we have a generation that actually groans for the presence of God? The question of when can I meet with you? When can I etch out time that no longer is television and Netflix and entertainment and all of the food and all of the culture and all of the beauty and all of the allurement of this life, what entices us? But a longing and a yearning and a burden for the courts of the Lord. See, we don't have that because we've yet to see true beauty. If we don't yearn and we don't ache for the presence of God and the dwelling place of God, it's because we've yet to see true beauty. Somehow, the lesser and the counterfeit of this beauty of this world is still alluring and tempting to us. But once we see him, all we desire is to be with him. This is the declaration of David. We're going to talk a little bit more about David. The declaration of David in Psalm 132. Actually, let's just go ahead. I'm not going to jump ahead. I'm trying to stay in my notes. We're going to do that. This is David. <clears throat> In 2 Samuel 7, 1, King David was living in his palace, and the Lord had given him peace from all of his enemies around him. Then David said to Nathan, the prophet, look, I am living in a palace made of cedar wood, but the ark of God is in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go and do what you really want to do because the Lord is with you. But that night, the Lord spoke his word to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, will you build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now, I have not lived in a house. I have been moving around all this time with a tent as my home, 
As I have moved with the Israelites, I have never said to the tribes whom I commanded to take care of the people of Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Then David said, <clears throat> sorry, this is First Chronicles 22. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons, and he cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and the joints and the bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance. <clears throat> Verse 5, now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be, ex be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparations for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. So we find David making preparations, and it's actually Solomon who was going to complete the temple. And even as in this passage as we were reading is all of us are very aware that in the Old Testament that the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it was actually in tents. It was, they were dwelling in tents, and this is what we call the tabernacle. It was the place where they would gather together and that the priests would go in. You can find this in Leviticus as far as the order of the priesthood. But what you find with the order of the priesthood is that they were assigned and they were designated to stand and minister before God on behalf of man because of our sin. But do you know what we find actually in the New Testament is that we are called to be a generation of priests before him. That no longer is it one individual like we see in the Old Testament that was prepared extensively and consecrated extensively to go stand before God on behalf of his people. But now we find as the, as the New Testament church that we are all called to be kings and priests. I'm going to give you guys just a couple of passages of scripture. <clears throat> First Peter 2, 9 through 10. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual home, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That we would proclaim the praises of him. That our life would be an unending song of declaring the praise of the one who delivered us out of darkness. That for all of our lives we would live in adoration, in wonder, in awe. That we've been captured out of darkness and brought into the light. That is a mystery. That is a wonder. We should spend all of our days fascinated and in worship and adoration over the delivering power of God to save us. That is extraordinary. And it's declared in this passage that we are a generation of priests. So no longer do we have the Old Testament priesthood. I want you to go back and study about the Levites. I want you to look at Aaron and his sons and, and what the extent that they had to go to to be prepared to minister in the Holy of Holies. And the mystery of it all is now in the New Testament, you can stand in the Holy of Holies. That a way has been made for you. That you do not need someone that has devoted their life and has to go through extensive cleansing, but because of the blood of Jesus, you have access to the Holy of Holies. It's what we have access, 
and what is available to us, but then yet most of us live outside in the outer courts wanting to observe. Living at a distance. Most of us, I can say, I'm I'm not calling this upon you, I'm saying even for myself, there's a reality of my life when I ask that question, am I living at a distance or am I living as close as Christ has made access for me to dwell to him? Because he longs for you to have fellowship with him. He has made provision, he has made it accessible. But the question is, will we live our lives in that posture and in that reality? And then we actually find um, concerning this language of us as priests, Revelations 1, 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Revelations 5.10, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God, uh, God persons from every tribe, every language, and every people group. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Can I ask you this question? Are you living in the priestly call that, that you have been chosen for? A kingdom of priests, of ministering before the Lord? Or do you almost see it as someone else's job to lead you in worship or to teach the word to you? But there is something that has been made available and accessible to you. And this is what I want you to understand, is in the Old Testament, it required an extensive cleansing of those Levitical priests. And so they actually did have this thing called the tabernacle. And it was, it was said that this is where God could dwell amongst men. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, he could no longer find a dwelling place in the earth. He could no longer find a resting place in the earth. So this tabernacle was set apart as holy. This tabernacle was set apart as a meeting place with God and with man because he longs for a place of meeting with us. So we find that in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we find the temple. And most of you know that according to Jewish culture, that they had the watch of prayer, that they were continually going to the temple. And, they, and there was the watch of prayer that was instituted. And once again, we see this corporate reality. See, in our, in our modern generation, we love the individual reality. We love the, I am the house of prayer. <laughs> I, I don't gather with a community of people of, I live my priestly unto myself somehow all by myself but do you know the extraordinary thing that you find throughout the word of God is God loves the gathering together and the corporate sense of worship before him this is the reality that he was instituting this is the reality and so the extraordinary thing is as David as you saw in this passage when God moved upon his heart to build God a dwelling place basically God gave him a pattern God gave him an order and the extraordinary thing is it is a type and a shadow of heaven so this is what we find the tabernacle of David was built in 10, uh, 1050 BC <clears throat> and it was out of the overflow of David's heart. And from that, he commanded that the Ark of the Covenant be brought on the shoulders of the Levites amidst the sound of songs and worship and instruments. And there was two 
188 prophetic singers and 400 musicians that would minister before the Lord. So basically, in the, in, in, in the time of Moses, the, the Levites were instructed that the fire on the altar should never go out. So was, there was this tending to the fire on the altar. That fire speaks of the flame of God's presence. Do you know that you have been charged in your own life that the fire on the altar of your heart should never go out? And that your vocation is the tending of the flame of God within you. And so we had this priesthood in the Old Testament that were called to sustain this flame and this fire in the tabernacle. And then you find, here's David. And he actually physically puts these 288 prophetic singers, 4,000 musicians to minister day and night in the tabernacle of David. It was extraordinary. Can I tell you, it changed their nation. It changed their economics. It changed their military might. It changed everything about it. And you know, this is, I began to study this. I mean, this was some 20 years ago. In around 2000, there were solemn assemblies that were taking place. We were involved with something called the call, and others have happened. And so we would do these one-day solemn assemblies that would take place in different cities and different nations. And it was like, it was 12 hours of hundreds of thousands coming to worship Jesus. And I can remember I was a part of D.C., I was a part of New England, I was a part of New York, and the list goes on. And I can remember at one point thinking, what happens after the 12 hours? Like, I know we're all believing for revival, right? We're believing for an inbreak of God's kingdom. We're believing for mass souls to be saved. But I can remember after doing several of these solemn assemblies, my question was kind of like, you have... Uh, D.C., there was 400,000 people that gathered. Boston, I know this will be hard for you to believe, 40,000 people in government center. I mean, that's like unheard of. I don't, I, I, it would take a sovereign move of God to see that in 2019, especially in that it was 11 days after 9-11, and it was the flight that flew out of Boston, and the city was in a, a, a lot of concern, and there was high security. And so they were advising that there should be no public assembling in government center. And yet 40,000 people turned out with great cause for their safety and concern for their safety. But they still came. But what began happening is, is I began asking the question, what happens after these solemn assemblies? Like, we're not necessarily seeing the heavens open and the glory come down and all of these cities being saved. But what happens after that? So what happened was I began to study in the Old Testament as far as solemn assemblies, because this is very biblical. We're not doing anything original (laughs) or new. I began studying after these solemn assemblies, but do you want to know what was extraordinary that I found? And I'll read to you kind of the the rhythm of how it was broken down. But what I realized is, is when they did a solemn assembly, they did not go back to business as usual. When they did a solemn assembly, and when they called a great assembly and gathering together, and let's be honest, the tone of a solemn assembly is, we must return to the Lord. For we have departed for him, but now we are rending our hearts and we are returning. The extraordinary thing is that they didn't just do it for one day. After their solemn assembly, they would reinstitute night and day worship and prayer. Of saying, this is the rhythm. This is the culture. This is the identity of us as people. And that is the acknowledgement of we can actually not live rightly or according to God's intended purpose, 
without that. So you can study it yourself, <laughs> but I'll just give you as a point of reference, there's six times in the Old Testament that after a, sub, a, a solemn assembly, there was subsequent accounts of night and day worship and prayer being restored and reinstituted. Um, we find the first one is in Solomon. Um, it was under Solomon in 1010 B.C., uh, Joash in 853 BC, Hezekiah in 726 BC, Josiah in 635 BC, Zerubbabel in 538 BC, Nehemiah in 446 BC. And so we find this is the pattern of the Old Testament of that when they returned back to their rightful relationship and posture before God, night and day worship and prayer was reinstituted. And then you find the cycle of, a cycle of history. They would begin to go wayward. They would begin to backslide. They'd find themselves in great crisis and difficulty and despair and being overcome by all of their enemies and their economic system would begin to suffer. And, you know, all of these things. And then all of a sudden they'd say, oh, something's radically wrong. What's wrong? Oh, we have departed from, and then there they go again, Psalm Assembly. <laughs> Here we go, let's return to the Lord. And then in their generation, they would reinstitute night and day worship and prayer. And then you would actually find that it would change their culture and society and their nation because they were living according to the heavenly pattern that we are intended to live in as people. See, when we are standing and functioning in our rightful place, there is a place of peace, and when I say prosperity, I'm not promising you financial prosperity. I'm talking about the prosper prosperity of your soul. Your soul shall prosper. That's a far better place to be than financial. I mean, I have financial prosperity. I'd love that too. But I want my soul to prosper first and foremost. But you find, I want you to look at the Old Testament, but this is what I'm going to say to you. This is not an Old Testament reality. Do you understand that the New Testament church in the book of Acts, it was born out of a prayer meeting. Jesus said, you go and you tarry there and you wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So this community of people came together. We could spend days on end on the book of Acts because you cannot deny the fact that there is a rhythm and a pattern of the book of Acts community that they gathered together for prayer and there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then what you find is the first time that Peter's persecuted, he literally there's a gathering together of prayer that regardless of whether there was mass salvations of souls, they did not retreat from the place of prayer. They pressed in the place of prayer because prayer was not unto a particular end. And once they achieved that end, they were done. Prayer was unto a particular person. And the obsession was the man Christ Jesus that until he returns, the fire on the altar will never go out. It's mind-blowing when you read the book of Acts. They experienced 5,000 added in a day in their responses to pray and call a prayer meeting. They experience persecution and they experience the, the first martyrdom and their response is to call a prayer meeting. Peter is imprisoned and while he's in prison, instead of shrinking into doubt and despair and unbelief and God's forsaken me and what about the advancement of the kingdom and why doesn't God care about Peter in prison? Instead, it says continual prayer was made to God by the church for Peter. What? 
They took their posture in prayer first and foremost, not in social activism, not in going against the government, not in rallying cries, but in the posture of prayer. And then what you find is the angel of the Lord came and opened the prison doors. He does what no man can do. And at some point we have to stop trying to do things in our own strength and our own ability of seeing revival and salvation and even your own life built. And the place of prayer is where you're called to labor. The place of prayer is where you're called to sow your life and give your life. The place of prayer is your primary vocation. You will be utterly discontented, frustrated. All of your labor will amount to nothing. Even as the prophet said, we gather, we gather, we gather, we put it into our pocket, and it's as if there's holes in our pocket. That's the place he's speaking of when we're not honoring God first and foremost. Because the issue is not about your labor, and the issue is not about what you can produce or what you can accomplish, how good you can be, what a phenomenal evangelist you could be, what kind of a church you could be. I'm, I'm going to give it to you straight up. I love what we're doing here right now. I love the assembling together of saints on a Sunday morning. I love us singing songs of worship. I think the word of God needs to be taught in our nation with clarity and conviction and without compromise. I'm 100% for that. But that is not the primary ambition of my life. Do you want to know what I want to see? I want to see the church of Boston, the church of New England, restored to their posture of worship and adoration. Do you know that this issue of worship will cure a thousand other ills? That there's many things that we can ascribe to as a church, but if we miss it on this place of him taking the center place, the central place, that he is our greatest ambition, our greatest desire, our greatest longing, and as the psalmist David said in Psalm 132, he said, I will give no sleep to my eyes, nor slumber to my eyelids, until I establish a dwelling place for God in the earth. I understand that for some of us, that is not the primary vocation of our lives. I understand for all of us, that that is not necessarily our calling, that we're looking to establish a dwelling place for God in the earth, a corporate reality. But I'm going to say two things is number one, it should be your individual vocation of your life being a resting place for him. That God can find rest in you. That instead of striving against you, that your very life is a resting place and a dwelling place for the presence of God. But also in addition to that, do not appease yourself and do not satisfy yourself with simply checking off that you attended church on Sunday. That you simply filled your slot on planning center and served once a month that that is not ultimately what he's looking for in the earth of a bunch of us workers to come together and set up chairs and, and then sing a song and then, and then all of us go about our business. He is looking for a dwelling place in the earth. And you know the extraordinary thing that we can find is that in the Old Testament, 
when Moses had, had set the, the Levites in place, and once they actually were consecrated, it's declared that then the glory of God came upon the assembly. And then Solomon, in his day, once they consecrated the temple, the glory of God came upon the assembly. The glory of God is a sign of his favor and his approval that he is pleased and he's found a place to dwell. Do you want to know the extraordinary thing about the book of Acts? We have never, ever, we've never seen anything like the book of Acts since. And do you want to know ultimately if you're questioning what does the glory of God look like? Read the book of Acts. That everything, the centrality of purpose and the identity of its people, of his people, was unto the presence of God. And that presence of God affected culture. It actually says that when they came into cities, that cities would fear them coming. Because they've heard the testimonies of these men. That they walked with God. If we question what does the glory of God look like in our generation, it looks like the book of Acts. And can I tell you something? We all need to meditate upon the reality of what that church was as a house of prayer. That they meant from home from home daily. Breaking bread together. Reading the word. That we find a continual prayer meeting. That they weren't doing anything of themselves or for themselves. But their eyes were consumed with a greater ambition. And can I say that as a community of people, when the book of Acts begins to be what we have appetite for, when we grow in our appetite for the glory of God to flood our generation, it will change your priorities. No longer are our own uh, very, very small and temporal and selfish ambitions important. But then all of a sudden, we've been ruined by a greater vision and a higher vision. And the extraordinary thing is we do see this throughout history, and it comes in response to the praying community. So you can call it 24-7 prayer. You can call it day and night. You can call it whatever you want. What we're talking about is a culture of worship and prayer. And I'm going to say this to you. It's not about sustaining a room. It's not about a room having people coming and going from it. It's about a community of people that are living according to a heavenly reality, that our eyes have behold the beauty of the Lord, and now we are living in accordance and agreement with that one thing and with that one desire. And this is what I believe. As we're going through this, this series on my house, I believe what ultimately God wants to do is he wants to shift your priorities. He wants to shift your ambitions. He also wants to shift our perspective of what the church is called to be. I don't show up here every Sunday to serve you donuts and watch your kids up there. That's not primarily why I'm here, to offer some kind of a service to you. The only reason I've given the best years of my life to building in Boston is because I have a vision that this city will be filled with the fragrance of worship and adoration of Jesus. I I know that it's not a vision that I I myself have. I know it's a vision that Jesus has for every city and every nation on the earth. And so therefore, it's in partnership and agreement, not only with his will, but with his word and with his desire. And that if if we're strictly going to be a Sunday morning gathering, I want to encourage you, if all you know of church is a Sunday morning gathering, you don't know church yet. 
I want to encourage you, find relationships where you can be accountable, where people can understand the struggles that you might be going through and maybe speak a word of encouragement or a word of correction over those things. I want to encourage you, if there's no Christian believers that you're looking around this room that you're praying with, you probably need to question whether you're really in community. Because as we pray together, you know what happens is, I can tell you so many times, there's scriptures that I have prayed consistently, and it's not until I hear somebody else pray that passage in the house of prayer, I think, I have never heard that perspective before. Because there's beauty that we begin to see more of Jesus as we're pursuing him together. There's places where we're challenged and we're inspired, we're provoked. And do you understand that you are not intended to cultivate the flame of God within you personally, individually, or independently. You're called to do that amongst a community of people that you can be provoked and inspired by those individuals. And so this is my prayer for us as a community, that as we embark upon this series, that there would be a place that we would look in the word of God and where our life is not in alignment with his word and with his wisdom, that we would bring our lives into alignment with that. And so I'm going to ask you, over this week, would you begin to read through and pray through and meditate upon Revelations 4? Would you begin to pray that your life, that, there, that your life would be centered around the priority of his presence? That's a very simple prayer. God, center my life around the priority of your presence. But that's ultimately, that as a community of people, what we're looking to build. That we as a community of people would not mostly be centered around the priority of fellowship. Not mostly, I understand those are aspects and dynamics. Not mostly centered around the priority of counseling and walking you through all of your problems. But guess what? Centered around his presence. Because in his presence is ultimately what you have need of. In his presence is where you find fullness of joy. If you're lacking joy, it's his presence you need. If you're, if you're lacking clarity, it's his presence you need. His presence has a phenomenal way of simplifying everything, of bringing the confusion of our universe into the simplicity of it's all about him. And he reduced it all to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I'm going to pray over us as a community of people that as we work through this series, that any place that, number one, we have not seen the church rightly, I'm going to pray specifically that we would begin to understand the church being called as a praying community first and foremost. And I'm going to pray that we as individuals would become a house of prayer and a house of worship and adoration before him. Father, I thank you, Father, for... Lord, the beautiful community that you've gathered here in Cambridge. God, I thank you, Father, for the, the lives that have gathered here today who love you and desire you and seek you. And Lord, we say, Father, that any place that our lives are not centered around worship, Lord, that our lives are not centered around the heavenly pattern and the heavenly reality of Revelations 4, that day and night, Lord, that the creatures surrounding your throne, that they never cease to cry holy. Lord, we ask, Father, that you truly would find that reality in Cambridge and in Boston. Lord, a, a community of people that have been swept up and captured by the beauty of holiness. 
who desire nothing else more than your presence and the inbreak of your kingdom. God, I ask, God, would you give us an appetite, Lord, for the inbreak of your kingdom the way that they saw in the book of Acts. Lord, I ask, Lord, that we as a generation would not be content and satisfied uh, with a casual approach to our Christianity, Father. But, Lord, I ask, Lord, that we would be marked, Lord, by a heart that seeks after you, by a heart that yearns after you, by a heart that loves the presence of God more than anything else. And, Lord, we ask you, God, that even as the priests of old were charged to never let the fire go out on the altar, Lord, I pray, Father, that we as a community of people, that we would never allow the flame of your presence to go out within our lives, but, Lord, that we would cultivate the place of your presence first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen.